0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. All right, good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 13. It's where we left off last week. Specifically, we're picking back up in verse 8. And we just have a short text this morning verses 8 through 10 of Romans. chapter 13, which I'll read here in just a moment. This is one of those passages in Romans that I think is a kind of summary in many ways of, of, of what Paul has been telling us and teaching us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So as you're finding Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, if you don't have a Bible, would love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that as our gift to you. And I think you'd just be helped if you had your own copy of God's Word open on your lap, even though we'll have the scriptures on the screen, there's just something powerful about becoming familiar with your own Bible. Um, I'm considering getting a new Bible, and I'm anxious about it, because all the places where I know visually that the verses are will not be, I I gotta find the same type of Bible, you know what I'm saying? So there's just something about having your copy of God's Word, It's, it's, it's helpful. Before I pray, and before we dive into this text, um, I, wanna, I want us to pray. We prayed earlier as Springer led us to pray for Jeremy and Samantha and praise God for his saving grace in the life of Samantha's mother. Um, I want us to also pray for two children in our church. Um, we don't do this very often, but I think, I think that um, it just my heart is to bring this to you as a, as a church body so that we can be praying for two children in the church that have been particularly sick over the last few days, the uh, last few weeks. The first is Maddie Kate Scott. Um, you may know Maddie Kate. She is, was born with spina bifida, as in a wheelchair. Just a rambunctious, bright-spirited, wonderful little girl. Her parents, David and Amanda, have been members here for quite some time and um, as a result of surgeries that she has to have because of her spina bifida she's been up in atlanta having just multiple multiple surgeries and some of them have not gone well and it's just been a tremendous just emotional weight on mom and dad and so she's been back and forth Um, it's been really really hard on them and so let's pray for maddie kate scott and then ada herndon uh, the daughter of jamie and claire herndon has been very ill for the past couple of weeks and has just been really lethargic and sleeping for about twenty hours a day and back and forth to doctors here in Columbus thinking that she had some virus and so she's up in Atlanta now and she's got a whole team of experts that are are, are caring for her and coming up with a course of action, Lord willing. I think this next five days she's having a blood um, infusion. And so there's, there's a course of action that the Herndons feel better about, but there's still lots of unanswered questions. And um, there's just lots of, of obvious and understandable anxiety on mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and just all of us that love the Herndons. So I'm just, let's pray now collectively for Maddie Kate and mom and dad, um, David and Amanda, and then for little Ada Herndon and for Jamie and Claire, and then for us as we look at his text. Let's pray together. Lord, and we pray, we thank you that we can come to you because of what Jesus has done, as Stephen prayed for us at the beginning of the service, and then as Springer prayed the gospel over us. We prayed again that Jesus, your Son, has opened up a new and living way by which we can come unwavering. Into your presence boldly, because we have a high priest who's not distant from us, he's not unacquainted with our weaknesses, but he was tempted and always as we are yet without sin. And because of that, your throne is a throne of grace that that bids us to come, all of us who are heavy laden and burdened, to come to you, our Father. And so we come to you in Jesus' name. Because you have adopted us as your children and filled us with your Holy Spirit. We come in Jesus' name boldly, Lord, pleading with you to bring healing and health to little Maddie Kate Scott. Thank you for good doctors. But Lord, we pray for grace to that little girl that she would recover from her surgeries and that you'd give the doctors wisdom. We pray for little Ada. Lord, there's some unanswered questions and we pray for wisdom. We thank you for the brilliance of of, of, of the gift of modern medicine, but Lord, all of that is a gift that flows from you. Whether or not those doctors are aware of it or not, Lord, they are part of your common grace to your people, and so Lord, we pray for wisdom, we pray for the treatment plan, we pray that little Ada would recover, and we pray for Jamie and Claire and their hearts to strengthen them. Lord, for them to trust in you. And I pray for both of these families, Lord, in some way we don't understand how your providence and sovereignty works itself out completely in our lives, but we do know and trust that you are in complete control and that everything works together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. So Lord, we plead with you to make these children well but we also, Lord, don't want to short-circuit whatever you may be doing. Lord, produce in these families and in this church more dependence on Jesus. Produce in these children more of a longing for their Savior. And do your will, Lord, we pray. And now, as we open up your text and read your word, Lord, make this church, make us more like Christ. Lord, Lord, what would it profit us if we just came in here and checked the box of another religious activity? Lord, it would be futile. It would be worthless. But your word has been written by your Holy Spirit. It's true. It's without error. It's authoritative. It's good. It's sweet to our taste. It is wise for salvation. It's, it's profitable. It makes us ready for every good work. And so, Lord, let us not let waste this time as we look at your word. And show us and teach us things from your word. Make your people that are in this room more like Jesus as a result of our time together. And for my friends that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you, by your sovereign grace, would give them a new heart so that they would be enabled to do what they cannot do on them, in themselves and that is to believe in Jesus and be saved. Help us with these glorious things, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, let's read Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, and then after we preach this sermon, we have the privilege to see the gospel, um, well, actually, I'm going to be doing the preaching, you're going to be doing the listening, I don't know why I used the plural pronoun there, um, but after I preach and you listen, then we're going to see the gospel pictured in water baptism, and it's particularly... Um, Joyful for me this morning, I have the privilege to baptize one of my sons, um, one of my biological sons, Jacob. Let me read Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. This is Paul writing to the Roman church. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, here's how I want us to attack this passage and to seek to understand it. I think to understand this text, we need to be able to understand two questions. And this is going to be the the outline as we work work through this passage. And I'm going to give you these two questions for you note-takers right up front. This will be be our outline of, of working through this text. Here are the two questions. What does love is the fulfilling of the law mean? What does that mean? And then secondly, what... Should this love look like in our lives? So, first question what does love as the fulfilling of the law mean when Paul says it there in this text? And then, then practically, what does this love look like in our lives? The first question what does love, which Paul says there in verses 8, and in fact, he mentions it in every verse, what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says that love is the fulfilling of the law? In order to answer that question, I think we need to zoom out a little bit and look and look at the big picture and just kind of what Paul walked through a little bit of what Paul has been walking us through in Romans. Remember, he starts off in, in Romans chapter 1 by, by reminding us and, and maybe teaching us for the first time that our biggest problem, according to Paul, according to the Bible, is not some horizontal Um, lack of fulfillment or lack of of all that we can be. But our biggest problem, every human being's problem is the righteousness of God. Another way of, of talking about the righteousness of God is the holiness of God. Because we have all sinned and cut ourselves off from the righteousness of God, we have a problem. It's the primary problem that every human being from every country culture tribe and tongue has and it is how will sinful man stand before a holy and righteous God and Paul starts off his letter in Romans by telling us that that's our biggest problem he says in Romans 1 verse 18 he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And for the next couple chapters, he spells out how all people, whether they are pagan Gentiles that have never heard any direct revelation from God, like the Jews did in the Old Testament, or whether they were God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews who received a special revelation from God, have all suppress the truth and rebelled against God and are unrighteous and as a result are separated from God because of this unrighteousness and thereby are right recipients of God's judgment, justice, and wrath. That's the biggest problem. And as part of his redemption to bring, to save, to rescue mankind from this wrath from his justice. God gave as part of his plan to save. God gave in the Old Testament. He gave his law. Now, the whole Old Testament is basically the story of God making a people for himself, Israel, the nation of Israel, giving them the law to show them his character, his grace, and to show them his beauty and what's right and wrong. And then their failure to obey that law. And then God giving Christ that law, even talking about the Christ that would come to obey the law for them. And so God gives his law that has just and right requirements for his people to live by. So let me, let me give you three statements to help you kind of summarize the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole Bible three statements these are here they are the law god has given his law to show us what's wrong to show us what what we shouldn't do in fact i think instinctively when people think of the law of god that's maybe the first thing that they think about you know don't do this don't do that and that's certainly part of god's law but it's also meant to show us what's right the law is full of instructions about things that we positively should do to image, to bear God's image, to bless people around us, not just admonitions about what we shouldn't do, but positive exhortations about what we should do. So so the first thing is to show us what's wrong, to show us what's right, and then ultimately the law, I think, is given to show us what is needed, to show us what's right, to show us what's wrong, and to show us what's needed. In fact, the law has a whole system of sacrifice temporary animal sacrifice that was meant to atone for the people's failure to do what is right and not do what is wrong. So built into the law is not only an ethic or rules and regulations of what not to do and what to do, but what you need for when you inevitably can't live up to the law. And so the whole Old Testament is full of this sacrificial system. In fact, Leviticus is primarily an explanation of this sacrificial system. But even this law and the sacrifices that it called for were a kind of shadow, a kind of temporary pointing towards a more permanent fulfillment of the law, which would be Christ who would be our sacrifice once and for all. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 16, there was this day of atonement where God's people were instructed to take this unblemished animal, and the priest was to sacrifice this animal, which is a picture of what is needed. A sacrifice is needed to atone for God's justice and wrath because of our unrighteousness. But the problem is, is the blood of bulls and goats doesn't really wipe away our sins permanently. Because they needed a day of atonement every year. And they would get a a bull or a goat, and the the priest would transfer the sins of the people uh, figuratively onto the, the the scapegoat. That's where we get that phrase from. And then there would be a guy, somebody, imagine this job. You're then to take the scapegoat out in they would sacrifice one unblemished lamb. There is a, a picture of the sacrifice to, to, to bear God's wrath. And then there would be a transferring symbolically of the sin onto the scapegoat. And then there would be somebody that would walk that goat down into the wilderness so that he would go away. So there's this, there's this picture of punishment for sin. And then there's this sin being taken away right and what is that a picture of friends can't you see the gospel clearly in that that's a kind of picture of what would come jesus who dies for our sins but takes our sin away but the problem is it was temporary because they needed to do it every year i mean apparently that goat wandered back into the camp you know (laughs) you know we we still sin and so the law god has given us this law and it's good it shows us what's right, it shows us what's wrong, and it shows us what's needed because none of us can fully please God. None of us, and this is the point of Romans, isn't it? None of us can save ourselves by our law abiding. Amen. But the law is good. In fact, let, let me just read to you how the psalmist speaks of God's law, lest we um, kind of in our culture sort of are in, maybe are prone to think of the law as something that is bad or passed away and having no impact on the Christian. Let me read to you Psalm 19. This is Christian scripture. This isn't just Old Testament. This is the whole Bible. Listen to what the psalmist says. The psalm of David here, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So God's law is good. But the problem is sin has so incapacitated us that we cannot perfectly obey God's law, which is necessary to be reconciled to a holy God. So Paul has a lot, the the Bible has a lot to say about the law, and and, and let's look at what Jesus has to say about the law before we can answer this question, what does love, is the fulfilling of the law mean? This is what Jesus says about the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Listen to what Jesus says about this law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then listen to what Jesus says in in Matthew 22, later on in the same gospel. Starting in verse 37, he he says something very similar to what Paul has said here in our text. He says, and he said to them, He was asked a question in the previous verse by a lawyer about what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus says, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is not, in any way, I don't think, relaxing the law. He's actually, he's actually ramping it up. We read in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but he's saying, just don't, don't, don't just not murder somebody, but don't even, don't even hate your brother inwardly. He takes it from outward action to inward heart attitudes. And so, what does Paul mean? When he says that love is the fulfilling of this law, which shows us what is right, which shows us what is wrong, which shows us what is needed, which is a display of God's holy character that none of us, in and of ourselves, can live up to. What does Paul mean by that? Well, Paul has a lot to say about the law so far in Romans, and we need to kind of trace his line of thinking. So this is what Paul says about the law before we can understand What he says about love fulfilling the law. Listen to what Paul says about the law in Romans, back in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So he's saying there's nobody nobody that can be justified. Every mouth is stopped. Everybody is accountable to God. Everybody. That's what Paul is saying about this 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 law. It's 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 called us all guilty. But then what does this law point to? It's not just an indictment of our guilt. It's actually showing something that we need. Remember these animal sacrifices that were a kind of temporary picture of what Jesus would do permanently? The law is pointing towards something outside of itself. And we see that in the next verse of Romans 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God or I think that phrase means the way that God will give his righteousness and make the unrighteous righteousness, righteous, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown. It's been pointed to apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So he's saying that the law, the Old Testament is actually pointing to something, a way to be made right with God outside of itself. What is it? Verse 22, the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the law is pointing to something. And what is that law pointing to? It's pointing to Christ. The whole Old Testament is the shadow of the reality of how Jesus will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And then Paul says this about the law in Romans chapter 7. Remember that chapter when we waded our way through Romans chapter 7? This this heart-wrenching chapter about how there's things that I don't want to do that I'm still doing and things that I want to do that I can't do. It's this this inner conflict that 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 we read about in Romans chapter 7. Well, what does Paul say about the law in the life of the believer now? He says in Romans chapter 7 verse 4, Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Remember, what is that phrase? I know it's been like six months, so certainly you remember that sermon back in October when we looked at that. What does it mean that the law aroused our passions? You, you, just, you see this every time you, you, you tell a child something, don't, don't do this, and the child may not have even been paying attention to that thing, but as soon as you tell that child don't do something, there's something stirred up in that child that, that just wants to transgress that border, right? Right? I mean, maybe I'm not a good parent, but that's the way it's kind of worked out in, in my life. And I know that's worked out in my own heart, right? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But listen to verse six. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, because we are in Christ who fulfilled the law for us, he did it for us. We died with him, and he raised and gave us his spirit inside of us, and now enables us to live for him. In fact, that's what he says in in Romans chapter 8. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Uh, verses 3 through 4. This is, the, I think, Paul's summary statement on what Jesus has done for us in regards to our standing with this law that we could not obey. This is what Paul says, Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's a deep phrase. We don't have time to unpack it. But Jesus is completely sinless, becomes a real, a true human, acquainted with our weaknesses, obeys God's law perfectly. And because of his obedience, Jesus condemns the penalty that should have been ours in the flesh. Listen to verse 4. In order that, friends, verse 4 is so full of glory that if we see it, it should cause us to worship. Why does Jesus come, become truly human, live a perfect life in our place, die a sacrificial death on the cross. Why? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so come on now, I know it's spring break. I know you're a little frustrated that you're here, and I know the pollen is terrible but see the glory of verse 4. Verse 4 is an explanation of the gospel in short form. It ties the Old Testament to the New. It's a picture of what God is up to. God is holy, and we are not. And God has expressed his holiness through this law, which will stand forever. And Jesus comes and obeys the law. Friends, this is so good. Jesus obeys the law for us. This is the gospel. Jesus obeys the law, every jot and tittle of it. He doesn't come to abolish it. He comes to live it out all the way to the nth degree. And then because he's satisfied the requirements of the law he then also bears the punishment for our law breaking and then rises in victory over the penalty of the law which is death and then through his resurrection saves the people for himself and when he saves him he gives him his holy spirit and with his indwelling spirit he gives us his righteousness so that now not only does god see us as fulfilling the law as jesus did but he gives us his spirit so that we can now live out the heart of the law which is love friends it's uh, no 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 it's it's so good it's so good that paul says That the wisdom of the world calls this, it's so good, it's scandalous, that it seems foolish. So wait a minute, let me summarize. You're telling me that the creator God would be so gracious as to create a creation that he knew would fall. And even despite their fall, even though he could have shaken the etch-a-sketch and started over again, decides to be gracious to them and give them a picture of his holiness through his law and then to bear with them for centuries even though they can't obey that law and then instead of getting frustrated at them for not obeying the law and starting over again he actually sends his son the second person of the trinity to obey his law for them in their place and bear the punishment for them, and rise again over it, and then actually give them the very thing that he requires of him. Friends, that is grace. And that's what Paul is saying here, back in Romans chapter 13, our text. That underneath everything that Paul is saying in verses 8 through 10, is this understanding of the gospel. That's why you have to read whole books all the way through. That's why you don't just cherry pick around in the verses. you got to understand the context. The reason Paul can say that love is the fulfilling of the law, he's not saying, look, I've come up with this great way to live. Love one another. So, Johnny, go be loving. Susie, try hard to love people. Because if that were all that the Bible had to say about what it means to follow God, we would last 30 seconds. But... When we realize that we can't love but Jesus, in and of ourselves, but Jesus has bore the wrath of God for us, given us a new heart, put his spirit in us, and enabled us so that we can, by the indwelling spirit of God, love like he loved, now we can fight and struggle to love like God loved, has called us to love. Friends, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says, do this, and God will then be pleased with you. Where the gospel says, God has loved you in Christ, and because of it, now you can do this. John Bunyan, the great Puritan preacher, was attributed with this phrase, I don't know if he really said it or not. There's debate as to whether or not he actually was the one who said this. But when Charles Spurgeon used to quote this a couple centuries later, he actually attributed it to Bunyan. So if Uncle Chuck says it, then I think it's okay. He says, John Bunyan, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which is the most published book in English in the history of the world other than the Bible. And John Bunyan said something to the effect of, the law commands us to run and walk, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. In other words, God accomplishes in us what he commands of us. And so now, what does Paul mean by love is the fulfilling of the law? He means the gospel that now is the consequence of all that God has done for you in Christ. Now you are enabled to love. Now the command of God, the imperative of God, It's not something that you must do in order to earn God's favor, but it's now something you get to do and will do because of or as a result of God's favor. Do you understand the difference there? The indicative of what God has done comes before the imperative of God's command. And the ability to do what God is calling us to do rests on what God has already done. And this is Paul's logic then in Romans chapter eight. What does he say after he tells us in verses three and four that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, and now we can live in that way? What does he say? This deserves glasses. Romans eight, verse nine. You. This is all consequence of what Jesus has done. You, however, verse nine. Romans eight, verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Why does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Not because you were acting good and obeying God you couldn't, but because God saved you sovereignly by Christ and made you alive. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if you disobey God and his law, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death death, the deeds of the body you will live, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So, so think about, think, think about that. I want you to see what's going on here in, in the Bible's picture of the Christian life, Okay? We were dead in our sins, unable to live up to God's standard. Jesus, God the Son, comes and becomes truly a man, truly God, truly man, and lives the life that we could not live, the law-abiding life that we, the law-fulfilling life that we could not live, and then bears God's wrath on the cross, defeats it, rises again, defeating the penalty, death, sin, in the grave, And then, as Ephesians 2 says, makes us alive by his rich mercy and gives us his spirit and his righteousness. Now, think about this. The moment, the moment that a person trusts in Christ, they are, as Romans 8 says, justified And in fact, they are already glorified. In other words, you cannot be loved any more than you were loved in that moment that the redemption of God's grace is applied to your heart. The righteousness of Christ is yours. It's yours. And when God sees you in your life, he sees you through the lens of Christ's obedience of his law for you. You are righteous. And now you can dwell with God. That's where you are positionally in God's eyes. But practically in time, you've still got sanctifying to do. You've still got godliness to grow in. And so that's what this part of Romans is where he's talking about this spirit indwells us to now enable us to live the life that God calls us to, to become who we already are. Do you see that? We're righteous in Christ. You can't be any more righteous. Boom. Boom. You trust in Christ. He makes you alive. And now the Christian life is the living out of what has already been imputed or credited to us. Do you see that? Friends, this is important because this is why we still struggle with sin as Christians. Because we are left to live this life of becoming who we already are in Christ. I mean, I don't have this on the screen, but we're going to go to it. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, chap, chapter 11, verse 14. Let me, let me read this text to you. Maybe you can pull it up there. Hebrews 11, verse 14. Listen to this. It explains it well. For by a single offering, meaning Jesus's death on the cross, Hebrews eleven fourteen. 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. You know, I've read this verse before. This verse verse captivates me. Why do people that have already been perfected for all time need to be sanctified? Because God has, has, well, it's the way God works. He has made us right, and he's, so we are, positionally in God's eyes justified, sanctified, perfected. In fact, Romans 8 verse 30 says we're already glorified and now we are becoming in time who we already are in Christ. And so now there is this, I want you to see the strength because there are people in this room, all of us, every one of us is in a battle with sin. And I want you to be so overwhelmed with the power and the promise and the beauty and the strength of the gospel so that we will tap into this glorious gospel strength. God has promised that we are already glorified, already sanctified. And so now he puts his spirit in us and calls us to live out this commandment of love, of caring for one another, to become who we already are. It's certain. God's taking you home. He will bring you home. He will lose none of his people. In fact, he speaks of your state as being so certain that he speaks of it in the past tense. In Romans 8 verse 30, you are already glorified. And so, we are now, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, we are now enabled to fulfill the law, to live up to the heart of the law, which is to love one another. And that's what Jesus has said. All of these commandments, all of even these temporary commandments that applied to Old Testament Israel in their sacrificial system, in their dietary laws, all of this was a kind of temporary picture that was pointing to the the moral heart of the law, which Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 is to love God and love your neighbor. So that brings us to the second question quickly as we end this. What should this love look like in our lives? What does this love look like? Well, Paul tells us, he gives us a few clues in the text. He says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The, the first thing about this love, what it should look like in our lives is it's, it's something that we owe. We're obligated to love one another. We're under obligation. I think we naturally resist obligations. In fact, I think there's a kind of faulty preaching of Christianity, a preaching of the message of the Bible, as if it, God's love sort of frees you from anything. But actually, when we see it rightly, this sort of puts us under obligation to love one another. This is what Paul says in Romans 1 He says, I'm under obligation. In other words, I'm under debt both to Greeks and to the barbarians. I'm under an obligation to make my life not about myself, but about others. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 says. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us. In other words, it puts us under obligation, because we have concluded this: that the one the one that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, meaning Jesus, died for all, meaning all kinds of people that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so, what should love look like in our lives? God doesn't free us so that we're just free to do whatever we want. It's a love that compels us to make our lives about other people and God's glory in the world. And then look at verse 9 and 10. What should this love look like in our lives? It's a, it's a love that leads us into obedience to the heart of God's commands. Look at verse 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Why are these particular commandments mentioned? Adultery, murder, stealing, covetousness. Because they're particular pictures, I think, of the horizontal damage of not loving others. To commit adultery, certainly to murder somebody, to steal from them, to covet. These are wrong, not, not merely because... God has put them on a list of bad things to do, but you see the horizontal residual damage that each of these things causes. And that's not why God created us, not to take and to hoard for ourselves, but to enable us to love, to care for others, to give our lives away. So when we do these things, we're not being loving because we're damaging the residual damage of adultery, of murder, of stealing, of coveting, destroys families, it destroys relationships, it destroys society. And it's not loving. It's not living the spirit-enabled, spirit-filled life that Jesus has enabled his people to do by giving them his spirit and his righteousness. And he says, in case we think, oh good, none of the things that I'm struggling with are on this list, he says, and any other commandment. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament law, dietary laws, and sacrificial system are still enforced today. Those things have passed away, and some people say, well, why are things like adultery and murder still enforced? Why is part of the Old Testament law enforced, and why is some of the Old Testament law not enforced today? I think that question is answered simply by we see all of the heart of the law, this ethic of love, loving God and loving your neighbor, everything that speaks to that in the Old Testament is picked up in force in the New Testament. And so the things like the dietary laws and different fabrics that God's people should wear or the sacrificial system was a kind of temporary portion of the law to set God's people apart from the onlooking nations. And Jesus then fulfills all of that. All of that has fallen off. But the heart of the law, which is love, loving your neighbor, which is picked up in these These commandments that Jesus repeats here are still in force. And so now, although the Mosaic law has passed away, the law of the spirit of Christ now governs us. We have this new law. It's the law of the spirit of life that lives in us, which is going to lead us in a life that will lead us into obedience in all that God commands us in his word. And so what should this love look like in our life? It's an obligated love. It's an obedience to God's commandments. And it's loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is the gospel. This is how Jesus loves us. Listen to John 15, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. On the cross, Jesus laid down his life for us. And because of that, we too now are enabled, because of the new life that he's given his people, to lay down our lives for one another. And when we do that, when we do that, we're actually pursuing joy. Joy. Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12 is described as, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And when we love, when we care for others, when we love our neighbors as ourselves, it's actually the most joyful thing that we can do. Rather than wanting more for ourselves, we care for one another. What does that look like in our lives? What, what does loving your neighbor as yourself look like in your life this morning? I'm not gonna run through a list of illustrations and hopefully catch the one that applies to you. I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit, to speak to us, to show us, Lord, what does loving my neighbor right now, in this room, just start in concentric circles, what does loving my neighbor look like? Maybe it's a kind word. Maybe it's a better posture towards your spouse. Maybe it's more patience with your children. Maybe Maybe it's you being kinder to the person that you work with that gets on your nerves. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with a friend that doesn't know Jesus. What more loving thing can you do than to share Jesus with somebody that you know does not know Jesus? How unloving is it to not share Jesus with them if we know that they don't know Him and know what the Scripture says awaits a person who dies without Christ? What is the love of God compelling us to do? How are we now enabled... To fulfill the law of love in our lives. How do we do that in this room? How do we do that in our families? How do we do that in the places that God has put us? Why has God saved us? Not for ourselves, but for his glory and for others. And therein lies joy. Let's pray. Father help us to see the gospel beauty of this text. There are people in this room who are struggling with all manner of ravages of sin, struggling with obedience, struggling with adultery, struggling with spirit of hatred. It really is a murderous spirit struggling with covetousness and a spirit of thievery, just wanting what others have. Lord, how can we live up to your law? How can we fight these lusts that still remain in us by seeing afresh the beauty of the gospel that we are freed from we're freed from ourselves, we're freed from our disobedience and we are enabled to pursue love, which is better, which is more joyful, which is sweeter. Your law revives our soul, Lord, as the psalmist says. It's better. And so, Lord, for that brother or sister who is in, who's in a, just a death match with their own sin, Lord, let them fight it with the power of the gospel that Jesus lived and died and rose again and gave us his spirit and obeyed for us and enables us to fight sin and pursue joy, God. Help us to do that. And then, Lord, for the rest of us that that, that may not be struggling with some sort of life-wrecking sin but are just content with just sort of cruising along, press on us, Lord, so that our lives reflect the love, the gospel love that you had for us so that we give our lives away, so that we go out of our way to love our neighbors, that our heads are on a swivel to see whom we might bless, whom we might pour, whom we might share with, whom whom we might give to, so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, let us not leave this place unchanged, unaffected by the law-fulfilling, obedience-enabling beauty of the work of Christ in the gospel. And I pray this all, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.